to live in the light. It hasn't been an easy journey. I know this has been one of the more difficult sermon series that uh, a preacher would go through because uh, there are many tests that would judge uh, the hearts of anyone who is proclaiming the truths of this book. And yet, right when I feel like John is being overly difficult and overly critical of us as followers of Christ, he comes back with a word of affirmation, a word of love. This letter was written by the apostle of love. This one who uh, continually would call out to his people, beloved, dear ones, my children. He loved those whom he was writing to, And he loves us, those that would receive the message years after this book was written. And within this great book, there have been many themes that we have seen throughout uh, the, the Scripture before us. I want us just to take a couple moments just to look at some of the things as a way of review. We learned in verses 1 through 4 about the incarnation of Jesus Christ and how that changed the way the Apostle John understood his faith. He had seen Jesus He had talked with Jesus. He had touched Jesus. And as a result of that experience with the incarnate one of heaven, he was forever changed. And a reminder for us that we need to experience Jesus. Not just experience him uh, at a uh, mental ascent level, but we need to experience him with our whole being. This understanding that we too, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, can uh, feel and touch and know the presence of Jesus Christ. We've learned throughout this series that God is our guide because He is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. He is our truth in whom there is no air mixed with Him. Uh, He is the one who is love. The definition of, of what love is and what love looks like comes from our God in heaven. And so what John has been telling us over and over again, in light of who we know in, in God and in Jesus Christ, he says the following, My brothers and sisters of Village Bible Church, as he did to the brothers and sisters in Ephesus, he articulates these words. You and I can't experience living in the light. You and I won't experience living in the light unless we begin to live and experience the light of Jesus. We won't live in the light unless we experience the truth of Jesus Christ. We won't experience living in the light unless we love our brothers and sisters. Now, there's a lot of us who say, I love Jesus. And that's a wonderful profession. But the question we must ask that has been brought to our attention over and over again by John is it's not just to be done with word or with tongue, but with action and in the truth. Do you live in the light? It's a question that we must all ask. Because living in the light is something we can do. Some say, there's no way I can live in the light. Tim, you don't understand uh, the issues that have uh, befallen me. I would say that it is possible to live in the light because God is light, because God is truth, and because God is love. And because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, you and I can know for sure that we can live in the light because he has given us the Holy Spirit whose anointing is upon us. And as a result of that, He desires to do great and marvelous things through his children. That's what living in the light is all about. It is made possible because God, the scripture tells us, lavished his love upon us. Are you experiencing that love this morning? Are you experiencing the love from the Father 
who through the person of Jesus Christ has poured out his love upon you. It is because of that we are motivated to live in this light. God wants us in his light. God wants us to experience it, not so that we can just do uh, another part of the uh, list of things that we as Christians are to do, but he wants us to live in the light because that is where abundance, that is where peace, that is where joy and contentment are found. When we decide to live in the light, we will begin to see a harvest of fruit uh, in our lives. In a couple of weeks, we'll be starting a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And it's not by accident that we're doing that. Because if we make an honest and willful decision that we are going to live in the light, then what's going to result is a harvest of fruit that's going to come out. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We no longer will live according to our flesh, but we'll live according to the Spirit. And so living in the light means... That we take Christ seriously. We begin to follow him. Oh, I pray for the day that we as a church would in one accord say to our Father in heaven that we don't want to just live lives that talk about our vibrant walk with Jesus. But that this place would be a place where real life change is taking place. A place here at Village Bible where truth would ring out from every teacher in every classroom in this place. That we would be rest assured that God would protect us from any doctrine that enables a believer to think that they can live in direct disobedience from the commands of Scripture. Finally, we need to be a church that lives in the light. And to do so, as John has told us over and over again, is that we are to love. We are to love our Savior to the point of transformation. We are to love each other to the point of sacrifice, and we are to go out and love our neighbors to the point of action. And what John says is, you can't just talk about that Village Bible Church, but it is something that we must do even when it's most difficult, when it involves our enemies. So after all these great themes, after all these five full chapters of incredible truth, the question comes, how might John close out this letter. Remember, it's a letter to his friends. It's a letter to those he loves in the city of Ephesus. How might he respond? How might he close this thing up? Would he give some new truth? Some new thought at the end of this great letter? Would he, like Paul many times in his letter, say hello to many of his friends? Or might he uh, finish up with a thought from maybe another writer? It seems that as we look at it, what he wants us to do is be reminded of what he's already taught us. I thought about that because many times when we have final words with people we love, our words aren't, especially as we're saying goodbye, new thoughts or new words. Uh, This last spring, uh, it was the first time uh, Amanda and I left uh, one of our children. We took uh, Joshua and uh, Luke with us to Washington, D.C., but because of school, no one needed to stay. And Noah's a seven-year-old, and he was really excited about being thought of as being old enough to stay on his own. Little did he know he wasn't staying on his own, but he was going to his aunt and uncle's house. And he was all excited, telling everybody how big he was, that he was going to be his own man And then the fear began to work in him because he began to realize mom and dad really are leaving. He saw the bags being packed, and he said, Dad, I'm scared. And I sat down with them, and I said, Son, I wanted to talk to you before we left. There's some things I want to tell you. And they weren't new thoughts. 
They were things that we've been going over with him over and over again. Thoughts like, hey, make sure you listen uh, to those who are in charge of watching over you. Listen to your aunt and uncle. Noah, be a good boy. Do what you're told. We reviewed, we rehearsed over and over again the truths that would make sure that all would be well while we were gone. And he did great. The first night was tough. We, we talked via Skype, and, and he looked at me, and he said, Dad, I'm trying to be strong, but it's scary not having you around. And I wanted to get on the next plane home and, uh, and hug that kid. But he did great because he listened to the things that we told him to. Final words are always usually words of review, words of truths that we already know, and John is no exemption from this. Because what we see is that he reviews for us. He brings his little spiritual children around him as if they're gathered around him as he's writing this letter. And he says, here, I want to close my message not with goodbyes, but with some truths that you need to walk in the light. So I want to look at these this morning. There are four uh, very quickly that we need to look at this morning. The first thing that John does in concluding his letter is he deals with the world's lusts. He deals with the world's lust. Now, as we look at this text, you're not going to see it uh, so clearly, and so I want to bring it out to our attention in verse 16. He says, If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. Now he goes on and says, there's a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that he should pray about that, but all wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now I know that's a lot of vocabulary gymnastics and sentence structure, and what is he trying to say? The first thing we need to understand is as we live in the light... As John closes out this letter, he says, I want you to live in the light. I want you to walk as Jesus did, to love as Jesus did, to hold to truth as Jesus did. I want you to do all these things, but I don't want you to forget this. Sin is going to come. There are going to be times, as much as you desire, as much as you long to live in the light, there are going to be things in your life, church at Ephesus, there's going to be things in your life, Village Bible Church, that are going to tempt you, that are going to lead you astray from the ways that Christ has taught us to live. It's a fact. We're going to deal with sin. We're going to struggle with sin. And he gives us a a reminder that this battle is something that we have to fight. I noticed as I was reading this, something that's amazing. Our, Our fight against sin is not fought by ourselves. Notice what he says. If anyone sees his brother. Well, what does that mean? The idea there in that phrase is that we are looking out for one another. This is not... Uh, my middle son looking out for his older brother. We're in the problem right now. We've got a four-year-old, and Joshua is seeing his brother uh, commit sins. And it's, Mom, Dad, did you see what Noah did? That's not what John is talking about. John is not saying, hey, if you see your brother in sin, go tattle on him. But this idea here is that what, God, what John is wanting us to understand is God is saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, people of God, you will not be victorious in your fight against sin if you're fighting it on your own. You can't. 
And yet how true is it for so many of us that we've got these issues that we've put in the closet and we're scared to death that if anybody would find out about these things, how broken we would be. And that's why the scripture says we ought to confess sin one to another, that we ought to be sharing with one another, that we should be praying for one another. Notice the answer that is given. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, notice what John says, he should pray and God will give him life. What should we be doing? Instead of gossiping about one another and saying, wow, what a terrible person that individual is, the sin that they're involved in, the scripture tells us we ought to pray. The only way we will help one another in this fight against sin is if we get on our knees and pray. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, the last time you spent some time praying for the people around you, praying specifically, Lord, I pray that you will uh, watch out for, for the young men and, and, and men in our congregation who may struggle with the issue of lust. Lord, I don't know who they are, but Lord, that's a battle, and I pray that you would give them victory. Lord, I pray for the moms in our church. Lord, I pray that you would give them patience and endurance. Lord, the moments that they want to wring their children's neck, that they would show love and compassion. That, Lord, they would be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry when their children are absolutely driving them nuts. Lord, I pray for the young people in our church. Lord, I pray that the world around them would not consume them. Father, I pray for the older individuals in our church that they would be examples to those young people, that old men would be teaching younger men and older women would be teaching younger women. My friends, when was the last time we got on our knees and began to really begin to pray so that we would be victorious? Understand this, what John is saying is you can't be involved in sin and think it's okay and live in the light. So John says, here's how we prevent it. We pray for one another. Oh, I would, I, I would love to see the day that we would be on our knees praying as a body, not just for our physical well-being. We're good at that. But that we would be praying for one another because sin is serious. Notice he goes on and he talks about that, the seriousness of sin. As we deal with the issues of the world's lusts, And the things that will consume us. John says there's a serious issue here. Notice what he says back in verse or chapter two, verse fifteen through seventeen. In chapter two, verse fifteen and seventeen, he says the following. He says, Do not love the world. Don't love anything in the world. He goes on to say, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, what does it mean that we love the world? Notice what John says. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. We need to understand that as we exit out of this place, we are under a constant bombardment to live like the world wants us to live. And the world says, it is, uh, this world is a platter that is set before you. Take and eat as much as you want. Don't worry about if it hurts others. 
Don't worry about it if it means you break the promises that of those that you love so much. Don't worry about it if you have to break the law or break God's commands to get it. Just go after it and eat it with all zest and pursuit of your heart. And yet John says, when we do that, we break fellowship with our God. We break fellowship with the one who saved us. We lose some of the assurance that we may have that we are saved because we're dabbling in this sin. This is a serious thing. And yet, my brothers and sisters, so many times when we talk about sin, we think of someone else because we begin to think that we can validate our sin. Our sin isn't anything big. I mean, everybody's doing it. How bad could it really be? Notice what John says. He says, all wrongdoing is sin. When a man knows what he ought to do and does not do it, the Scripture tells us that is sin. The Bible tells us that anything that is done apart from faith is sin. Sin will separate us from God. Sin is what separated our natural mother and father in the Garden of Eden. This was serious because it meant the wage of death. And we have to recognize that sin is serious. Sin is what can ruin our lives. Now notice John goes from the seriousness of sin to the scope of sin. He wants us to understand what what is sin. He's already articulated that all wrongdoing is sin. But now he separates some things. And he says the following. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. That's one spectrum. But he goes on and says there's a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is a sin that does not lead to death. What are we to do with that, John? Now, there's no question that the people of Ephesus who John was writing to understood what John was talking about. But we don't know what he means by that. And as a result of that, scholars find themselves divided on what that means. And I want to give us just a very quick theological understanding because this is a question, in fact, this was one of the questions back probably about October as I was mapping out this uh, letter as we were going to teach it. I always ask some questions. As As a student of the Scriptures, I start asking questions that I don't know. And one of the questions was, what is the sin that leads to death? I want to know after I'm done studying this what that sin is because if there's a sin that leads to death, I want to stay away from it. I had my ideas of what it was. I thought maybe the sin that leads to death is rooting for anybody that's not the Chicago Cubs. It's not, because as we can see, God works through pagans just as he does with his chosen group. I don't want to see any sweeps or brooms or anything like that, okay? But what is it? I don't want to do that. We don't want to fall to that. And so the Scriptures are very vague in this, and so we need to understand it. First of all, what this could mean, write this down. The first interpretation is that we are reminded from the Old Testament law about degrees of transgression. There were capital offenses and there were misdemeanors. In fact, the Judeo-Christian understanding of the law of Moses is how we look at our law system here in America. 
We have first-degree murder. We have second-degree murder. First-degree murder, of course, is the idea that we were premeditated in our desire to kill somebody, and so we thought about it, and then we acted upon it. Whereas second and and some of the lesser degrees is the idea that something happened, a a whole set of actions or, or things, events transpired where murder took place, but it was not maybe per se our premeditated intention to kill. There's degrees uh, to this. And, and then maybe this is what John's talking about. Uh, our friends that are in the uh, Roman Catholic Church uh, would agree with this interpretation. And this is where our Catholic friends come up with the idea of the distinction between venial and mortal sins. Venial sins are, are misdemeanor sins, sins that are forgivable. But there are mortal sins that separate us from the grace of God. And that is why, for some of us Protestants who aren't aware of this, that's why a priest has to come in at the time of death to absolve the individual. So if there are any mortal sins in the life of the one who is about to die, that they would be taken care of and covered so that that person would have a safe passage into heaven. The problem with this interpretation is quite simple. Number one, God does not speak of distinctions when he deals with sin. There are different consequences for sin. And there are uh, different warnings that are given about particular sins. But nowhere is there this thought that there is a distinction between them. All sin, all wrongdoing is sin. Uh, All sin leads to death. And so it would be hard to think that what John is trying to articulate here is the idea that there's a degree of sin. All wrongdoing is sin. But notice the second one. If it's not a degree of sin, might it be those Christians who walk away from the faith? The word that we use as pastors is apostatize. And what that means is is that they have willfully rejected Jesus Christ. And what that means is that I'm walking with Jesus, I'm walking in the light, but at some point, what John is saying, these interpreters believe, is that as you're walking in the light, at some point you say, you know what, I don't want to walk with Jesus anymore. I don't like him. One of my sons has a friend, it's again the four-year-old, and he's our passionate one, he's our John in the family, And he's got a little friend named Elliot. They look alike. It's amazing. You watch them walk down the street and just enjoying life and everything. And they love each other, putting their arms around each other. And then something will be said by one of them. And one will look at the other and say, I don't want to be your friend anymore. And then they go running off and they're mad, yelling at each other and saying they don't want to play with each other anymore. And this is the thought by some, that people that are friends with Jesus, walking and talking with Jesus, come to the point, for whatever reason, that say, I don't want to be with you anymore. And that's the sin that leads to death. The problem with it is, is what the Scripture tells us just beyond this passage in, in, the, uh, in verse 18. Notice what he says. We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe. He goes on and he says, we know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding that we may know who is true. Here's the whole idea. Uh, The true child of God will never walk away from God. He'll never deliberately reject God. Now there will be times and seasons of sin, but there will never be a willful rejection. Why? Why? 
Because the scripture says God will keep him. God will not allow the evil one to have that kind of reign in his life that will keep him from apostasizing, from walking away from the faith. So that's not the interpretation that I think is correct. The other ones believe that this is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Of course, this is from a direct passage of Scripture that Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 12. Write this passage down, Matthew 12, 31 and 32. And Jesus is speaking to the uh, Pharisees, and he says uh, the following in Matthew 12, 31 and 32. And, I, and so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven of men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. John, what you're talking about is what Jesus was talking about. And what that is, is that if any Christian uh, utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, then they won't be forgiven. The struggle with that, again, I go back to the thought that the true child of God will be kept from that type of uh, rejection of God. The other thing is, is that as a result of that, what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is a willful rejection of the person and work of Jesus Christ that has been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. So let me explain that. What that means is the individual, the sinner, who says no to the Holy Spirit over and over again, who denies the person and work of Jesus Christ in their life, will not be forgiven. What that means is their sins are still left. They have, uh, they have spoken against the Holy Spirit. The idea of blaspheming is the idea of speaking against. And so when the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin, they say, no, I'm fine. When the Holy Spirit says, you need to trust Jesus, they say, no, I don't need Jesus. That sin is unforgivable because it is left that individual in their sin. So what is the interpretation that seems to be the strongest? Most of the commentators that I work with uh, agree with the following, and that is this is not a particular sin, but it's different sins that can be so serious in the Christian's life that they could lose their physical life. Now, there's examples of that. We know Nadab and Abihu, the sons of uh, Aaron, Moses' brother, were priests, and they, uh, they uh, gave to God unauthorized fire, the book of Numbers tells us. And we don't know what that unauthorized fire was, but we know that God dealt with them, and he was so angry with them that he killed both of them. And the scripture says Aaron was silent. He knew whatever they had done, they deserved death. How about those that were a part of Korah's rebellion? These individuals who rebel against God's chosen leader in Moses, and they're speaking uh, rebellion against Moses, and God opens up the earth during their times as they're uttering these terrible words against Moses. God opens up the ground, and they all are consumed. How can we forget uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They had said that they were going to give a certain amount uh, to the church, and then they go and they present a partial portion of it and they lie to the church and say that that's all of it. And the scripture says they lied against the Holy Spirit. And at one point, the husband dies, they bring the wife in, and she is laid uh, dead by God himself. And then who can forget the writings and warnings in 1 Corinthians around the Lord's table? 
that those that do not uh, take the Lord's table seriously, that as a result of that, some were sick, and many had fallen asleep. Many had died because of this. Now, does that mean that every time you take communion or every time you lie, uh, you are going to find yourself uh, ending your life? Boy, I'm so thankful for the grace of God that that doesn't happen. But God reserves the right that when he sees sin, to say to the believer, it's better you come home than you play games with me. This rings true in my life. Many of you know I had an older brother almost 20 years ago die in a car accident. And our last uh, video of our brother, uh, my brother, was at a church camp where he gave his testimony. And in that, he shares in an incredible articulation that he knew that God was working on him. And as he was rebelling away from God, and, and disrespecting my parents, the Lord allowed him to experience a couple very difficult hardships in his life. And he said at 16 years of age, God is giving me a warning. He is saying, Chris, if you don't start living for me, then I'm going to take you home. And he died two weeks later. An amazing thought. Guys, this is where we go back to the seriousness of sin. You can't play games with God and think, <laughs> I, I'll be fine. I'll straighten my life up. I'll enjoy my teenage years. I'll enjoy my young adult life. And I'll get right with God later on. You may not have that opportunity. And so what it means is deal with sin. Nip it in the bud once and for all so that you can live in the light. Because we know how serious sin is. We recognize it that it may lead to death. It may not. But we need to help one another in this fight against sin. Notice the the next thing that we see, and that involves the world's Lord. Why does John speak about sin? Because it's all around us. Why is it all around us? Notice what the text says in 1 John chapter 5 again. He says the following in verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We need to understand the reason why we fight with sin is because the devil is out there. And the devil has created this whole world system to attack the very people of God. I want you to understand that the whole reason why the world and the culture acts the way it does is to trip up you and I as believers so that we will no longer live in the light but we'll live in the darkness. It's the process of deluding the minds of the individuals who are uh, unsaved so that they will believe a lie and turn away from the truth. This idea is seen in the domain. I'll write that in your outlines. The domain that the devil has. Where does this turf begin and end? John tells us. He doesn't say, hey, uh, be careful. We know that we are children of God and that all of TV is under the attack of the evil one. He doesn't say, uh, we know that we are children of God. Now be careful of that music, those drums. I told Brendan uh, I, today, he was playing the drums. I said, Brendan, I said, uh, remember, we got some older people in the church, more mature. They know Johnny Cash. They don't know the drums you're playing. I said, they're going to think there's Animal from the Muppets back there, young guy playing the drums. He looked at me, he says, who's Animal. I felt very old. But some of us are thinking the devil's in the beat of the drums. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't say, we know that we are children of God. 
and that young people are under the control of the evil one, or old people are the contr- under the control, notice what he says. The whole world. The whole world. This world system is saturated with the control of the evil one. He is at work. He is the spirit that is at work in those who are disobedient. We need to recognize that. When we leave this place, when we leave our homes, we enter in, I should even say it's in our homes, but but as we involve ourselves in this world, we must understand we are going to be under constant attack from the evil one. It may not be the devil himself, but it's the devil's system that he has. I was watching an interview uh, on CNN, and uh, it was about an individual in Israel who lives uh, just um, south of the Israel, uh, Israeli-Lebanon border. And of course you've got Hezbollah and Hamas, and they're shooting what they call Katusha rockets all the time. And the guy says, we're always under attack, so our children play with helmets on and with shrapnel vests on at all times. And we're always aware of what's going on in our surroundings because we know the attack is inevitable. The question is, when will it hit us? And I thought about that and I said, that's the way we as Christians ought to live. Always ready for the attack. Always prepared. And that's why the book of Ephesians says, put on the full armor of God. Why? Because the devil's going to attack at any time, at any place, and you may not be ready for it. And that's why I go back to that we ought to be praying for one another. John is saying, be careful. It's not just that the, uh, the false teachers are the problem. This whole world is the problem. Because it's under the domain of the evil one. But notice, there's a defeat that is seen. So we get nervous. <laughs> I can't go out. I, I can't have friends. You know, they're all under the control of the evil one. But notice what the defeat that is seen. We know, verse 18, that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe. Now notice what he says. And the evil one cannot harm him. The devil can't beat you up. I've told you this before, the devil's a dog on the leash of God. Remember Job. The devil comes and he speaks to God and he says, God, I want to mess around with Job. And God says, okay, I'll let you mess around with Job, but you can't touch him. So what does the devil do? Okay, I got to live in line with what the Bible or what God says. And so he destroys all that Job has. And Job is faithful. And so what happens then? The devil has to go back. And he says, well, of course he's going to be faithful to you. You won't let me touch him. And God says, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. Understand this. The devil can't do anything to you as a child of God without God's expressed, written consent. So if you think you're being beat up by the devil, you've got to understand something. God is there and he's saying, I am only going to allow the devil to do what I think he should do. He can't go one step farther than that. What a wonderful reminder for us. We have he that is greater that is in us than he that is in the world. 
We can find victory over sin because God keeps us safe. We don't have to worry and fret that we're going to fall to all types of sin if we recognize that we are kept safe. The other night, it was late, and we were picking up uh, our sons from my parents' house, and uh, my dad said, hey, could you move a tree branch? That's what my dad does. He has all these jobs for me to do when I come and pick up the children. It doesn't cost me anything to get babysitting, except I have to work for three hours when I pick them up. And he says, there's a tree limb down in our driveway. Will you, you go and take it out? And I, I told the boys, why don't you come with me? So the four but all boys, set, uh, you know, 34, 7, 4, and 3. It's like 11 o'clock at night, and my parents live on an acre property. And we're supposed to take this uh, big tree limb to the burn pile. And so we're pulling uh, the tree, and we're in the backyard. It's pretty uh, pitch black out. And my children, you start hearing them say, Dad, I, I'm getting scared. Dad, we don't know what's out here. And I made a response. I said, I said, boys, come here. And you can tell they're getting scared. You can hear dogs barking from, you know, local neighbors and stuff like that. And they're getting nervous. And I said, I want you to know something. I'm with you. You never have to worry when Dad's with you. And Joshua looks up to me. He's the one that speaks usually the first. He said, Dad, I knew that. <laughs> but something that he knew, he was the one that was most scared. And so we know that God is with us, but we begin to forget, and it's not the experience of us understanding it, and as a result of that, uh, we live in fear. We live forgetting it. But remember, the devil's been defeated. I love what Martin Luther said in this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. How? Because he says, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. We ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same. And he will win the battle. Do you recognize today that you living in the light is living in light of the victory that God has already given you? The devil's been defeated. John wants us to know that so that we cannot be afraid. So that we know that we will be victorious. Notice the next couple things and we'll close. John shows his affection by giving us some comforting words. He repeats threefold. We know we know, we know. When we forget things, we, we repeat to our children. Back to when I was talking with Noah, the idea of remember this, and you know this. You, you know what you need to do, and so do it. And this is what John says. He says, we know. And he says it in regards to three things. First of all, we see and we know, first of all, uh, two feats, if you will. Not feet, as in the feet that we walk with, but two amazing things that God has done that we know and we believe because we live in the light. The first one is, write this down, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, we know also that the Son of God has come. What does that mean? We know Jesus is who he says he is. We believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And as a result of that, we now can experience Jesus unlike anybody else in this world can. Even though false teachers say that we're missing it, even though the world says we've lost our mind, because of Jesus Christ, because he became flesh and dwelt among us, we can know him and experience him. 
And as a result of that, that experience allows us to live in the light. Notice the next thing, that it's not just him coming in the flesh, but it's the illumination of the Holy Spirit. How do we know? How can we believe? Notice what he says in verse 20. We have been given understanding. The reason why we believe, the reason why we know is not because of us, but is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. You do not believe. You do not trust apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I ask you, when was the last time that you in your own strength tried to confide? Because Martin Luther says that striving would be losing. But as we put our faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ, who we've experienced, who we've loved and seen do amazing things, as we've been illuminated the great things of God, we then are able to understand and know what living in the light is all about. Notice he goes on from two feet to two finds. He, he, he sees a couple things that he wants us to remember. One is positive, write that somewhere. One is a positive find. Notice what he says. We also know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Understand this. We may not know everything about God. We may not know everything about Jesus Christ because who can know the mind of God? But let me tell you this. You know all that you need to to live a life of abundance, to live a life of joy, to live a life that turns away from temptation and sin, to live a life that one day as you stand before God, you know enough about Jesus that you can know that you have eternal life. This is what he's declared. This is what he's taught us. And as a result of that, we should feel incredibly loved because he's given us this opportunity because of our position. Write that in your outlines. Because of our position. Because we are in him who is true. We're his children. We're his followers. We know this because we know our Father in heaven. And this position gives us access. It gives us confidence in prayer. It gives us a way of escape and way of temptation. It gives us everything we need. He goes on to two facts. He tells us the fact that Jesus Christ is the only deity. He says, and we know him who is true. Even in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God. Jesus does not involve himself with anyone else. He does not share the throne with anybody else. He is the only one who can answer all our questions. He's the only one who can calm all our fears. He is our hero. He is our friend. He is the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the one. And we know that to be true. And so live in light of it is what John is saying. He's saying if you know Jesus is as great as he is, then put your life in him. Trust in him. Look to him to answer every question that you have so that in turn you may live like him. And as we live like him, there's a different destiny. He says he is the true God and he is the eternal life. He that has the Son has life. As a result of are walking in the light, we may know that one day as our eyes close that we will be ushered into eternal life, which is, and I might add, living in the light for eternity. Even though we do it very, uh, in a very difficult way now because of sin, we won't have any problem doing it in the world that is to come. One final thing that John does is he gives one last warning. 
In verse 21, John finishes this book in a very odd way. Look at what he says. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Why would John finish this way? Because idols, my friends, is what keeps us from Jesus. Idols are what keep us from living in the light. And so what do we need to know about it? Very quickly, we need, we're running out of time. Number one, we need to understand that victory from idolatry comes and it involves, first of all, defining it. What is idolatry? We have this thought as Christians that idolatry is when we make statues up and we start worshiping uh, graven images. Let me tell you, anything can be an idol. Your wife or your husband can be an idol. Your children can be an idol. Your job can be an idol. Your hobbies can be an idol. Uh, this world can be an idol. Anything that, that is made that is not of God is something that could be created to be an idol. We need to define it and understand it. What takes precedent from our relationship with Christ is that which we have created as an idol in our lives. So the next question is, once we define it, John, we must determine what idols are in our life. And so this is how you do it. I want you to think about this as you leave today. Because this will keep you from living in the light. And that is, first of all, what gets you most fired up? What are you most passionate about? Is it Christ? If it's not Christ, then there's an idol in your life. I'm told by people all the time, I just don't carry the passion that you do. Uh, I'm not a very passionate person. And then you, you sit with them and you watch a baseball or football game with them and you find the individual who says he can't get passionate about Jesus gets pretty passionate about what he's seeing on TV. What fires you up? Number two, what brings you the most joy? What are you most excited about? Beware, that may be an idol. What do you find your heart setting itself upon? What do you hope for? What are your dreams? Another question about idols is where do you spend the, most of the, the bulk of your time? Is it pursuing God? Is it pursuing his righteousness? Is it pursuing his word? Or is it pursuing something else? What causes you the most pain when it's gone? And the greatest elation when you have it. I can tell you there have been TV shows that I've made idols in my life. There are times where I, just like Esau, have pursued a meal over Christ. There are times when I've pursued celebrities and people that I think are pretty cool over the person of Jesus Christ. And John says, keep away from it. Stay away, because if you want to live in the light, you can't live in the darkness of idolatry. And so what we need to understand is we need to declare independence from it. Destroy those idols in your life. Stay away from them. John tells us, keep away from them. Literally what this idea is, is rid yourself of anything that gets in your way of having a vibrant relationship with Jesus. Living in the light, my friends, is God's intention for us as believers it is the light that we must desire most. Is it true of you today? Do you desire to live in the light? 20-some weeks of speaking about it. Is your desire any different to live in a vibrancy of living in that light? 
If not, John is saying, start by looking at the things in your life that keep you from it and start knocking those things down. Get rid of them so that you can set your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, scorning its shame so he would sit down at the right hand of the Father. And he did that so that you and I may be given the gift of salvation so that we may find abundance, joy, and peace as we live in obedience for him. Let's pray. Father God, what a book. What a lesson. Lord, if none of my brothers and sisters learned a thing, I am thankful that you have taught me so much. And Lord, that may have been your intention. To speak to me, who speaks of such vibrance in my walk, and how quickly I turn to sin. How quickly I will speak of your goodness, and yet I will consume the garbage of this world. Lord, I confess that I don't always live in the light. In fact, Lord, if I really thought about it, I might rephrase that and say it's very rare that I find myself truly living in your light. And so, Lord, I pray not just for myself, but for my brothers and sisters who no doubt struggle with the same malady as I do. Lord, we are prone to wander. We're prone to leave you. You've done so much for us. And yet, Lord, we just are so willing to walk away. So, Lord, I pray you would strengthen my friends. You would strengthen me. Lord, that we would be different. That we would be changed. That in a world of darkness, in a world of air, in a world of hatred, that this world would see us living in the light, living in the truth, and living in love. Because, Lord, that is what you've called for us to do. That is how you've created us to find the joy that is everlasting. So, Lord, as we leave this place, I pray we'd be different. That we would live in that light. We would live in that truth. And that, Father, even as we walk out of this room, that we would love as only Jesus can. So dismiss us from this place, Lord, with your grace, with your mercy, and the full assurance that you love us and will keep us no matter how severe the storm around us is. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Go in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You are dismissed.